the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a new week. Welcome to the Monday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And in case you're tuning in for the first time, we're here every weekday at 4 o'clock to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. At 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, I remind you every day the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app and hit the call now button and you will be connected to the studio uh, producer. Uh, We'd love your live calls. I don't know if anybody else was disappointed. It didn't get dark. It didn't get anything. And by the way, for all those people who said that something terrible was going to happen or happen or the rapture of the church was going to happen, which would have been great. um, I told you last week, I'll tell you again tomorrow at four o'clock. We're still here. We're still uh, here with the responsibility to serve the Lord. So maybe we can get our hearts and our minds set on the more serious things of serving our Jesus in the time that we have left here, however long that is. But we can learn, always we can learn not to be carried away with these crazy conspiracy theories and things like this. We're still here. Uh, Before I take a phone call, let me just say it's Monday. Normally we'd have our men's and women's Bible studies. Those are on hiatus now until September 11th. We always give parents a couple, three weeks to adjust when the kids get back to school, uh, new time schedules, new new issues going on in the homes. So it's Monday, September 11th. Uh, we will be resuming our men's and women's and youth uh, Monday night Bible studies. So thank you for your patience. Uh, today, school started for us. This was day number one. Uh, and it was loud here again, but it was really, really great to have the kids back. So I appreciate your continued prayers for our school, for the kids, for the staff, uh, the people here that are serving so selflessly. Um, it's always good to see all the activity. Okay, we don't have a whole bunch of stuff, so we can go right to our phones now and talk with Art calling on line one. Art, thanks for calling early. You're on the air. How are you doing, Pastor Art? Doing well, thank you. I have two questions. Uh, one quick question and then a little bit longer one. Uh, when is Pastor Ronald Reese uh, going to be at the church? And the second question is, you know how in Genesis 6 um, the sons of God were with the women of men? Um, mm-hmm. How come it, that can't happen today? Because, I mean, the main demon himself, Satan, is still loose. You, you know what I'm saying? You know, I know they changed up uh, uh, the worst, but... But Satan himself was still loose, and I, I thought he was the worst of the worst. 
Yeah, he, he is, and to be sure, um, um, you're right, the, the, the incorrigible angels, those with such immense power that they had to be chained up, are under control. But so too is Satan. Satan can only do what God permits him to do. And um, uh, if the Lord uh, uh, had some indistinguishable purpose uh, art for for giants in the land again and these kind of things happening uh, then then it could happen but only with the with the approval and the the authority of God um, you know it's one of the things that's hard for us to understand that Satan is a servant of God even though he hates God and everything about God uh, and he's trying to destroy God he's trying to destroy the people of God um, he's still on a very very short leaf imagine the, the, the damage he could do, the havoc he could wreak if he was uh, a sovereign. But only God is sovereign. So uh, only that which God permits is able to be done. We, we don't understand and won't art until we get to heaven. We can't understand why God allows Satan to do anything or why he has any contact or allows any contact from, from Satan. Um, but he does, and he's using it. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, and that means all things, even the evil and the wicked things, uh, the demonic things. So um, the sons of God uh, is is a one-time thing. It happened. Um, the flood wiped out uh, those descendants. Now, obviously, there were still... Um, giants in the land, but not the angels, not the demonic angels, and the giants were a result of normal human uh, reproduction rather than than supernatural reproduction. Uh, the question about Pastor Rawl, he's going to be here on October 5th. Uh, if that's a Thursday, he's going to be here. We're going to have him on the radio program at 4 o'clock, uh, and we're also going to have him here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio that evening at 7 o'clock. So uh, mark that down on your calendars. He'll be here. And uh, if you're a Pastor Rawl fan, he's a wonderful guy. Uh, if you're a Pastor Rawl fan, you'll be blessed. Uh, he always is very thoughtful, takes a lot of time with people. And uh, the last time he was here, it's been some years ago now, but the last time he was here, uh, he spent as much time as, as people wanted him to, answering questions. Uh, people were asking him to sign some of his books and things like that. So uh, he'll be here on October the 5th. Ten years ago, I just got a message from my producer was the last time he was here. So uh, coming up in October the 5th, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question that came in from our email inbox anonymously. Uh, Pastor, and women are not to be pastors. I know the biblical support behind that. But is it okay for a woman to be a youth leader? almost like a youth pastor, but without the pastor title. I have a friend who has been serving with the youth at her church, and she may be promoted to the head leadership position over the youth, not a pastor necessarily, but the leader. She has such a heart for the kids, I don't see why it would be a problem, especially since she won't technically be a pastor. What are your thoughts on this? Um, Anonymous, I, I, I have some pretty strong uh, opinions on these kinds of things. And uh, I want to start out by saying that the only prohibition in terms of a role that a woman has in the church, every other thing is open for her uh, to use her gifts, the gifts given by God. The only prohibition is to be a pastor in the church. A pastor, by definition, comes with authority. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And specifically, it's, it's authority in a teaching role over a man. But, but kids don't have authority over the governance of the church. So a, a woman being a, uh, a youth leader or a facilitator or, or even teaching uh, junior high or high school age kids, I don't think would be a problem because that, that woman would be under the authority of her uh, senior pastor in the church. Uh, as you may have, have heard me say in this program, Anonymous, we have a woman who is our children's ministry leader, um, and, and she is under our authority, my authority specifically. Um, but you know what? She's been here for more than 20 years. I don't have any issues. She's got Jesus' heart for the kids. 
uh, and, and she doesn't act independently of me or try to make decisions uh, that, that don't meet my approval. So I'm really in charge of the children's ministry. I'm in charge of the women's ministry here at Calvary Chapel, San Antonio. But God has raised up some really wonderful women to do it. So I wouldn't have any problem at all with this friend of yours uh, who especially, is, as you so wonderfully said, she has such a heart for the kids. Uh, I, I don't think it's a problem at all. Um, the problems come in when we want to usurp a role that God doesn't have for us. And it's uh, that could be male to male, female to male. Uh, when we want to usurp authority that hasn't been given by God to us, that's when we have a problem. So uh, I, I don't think the fact that there are male children, uh, again, those are people that have no authority, represents any problem at all. And I would say if she is the one that the leaders in your church um, have decided is best for the work God is doing there, then I would have no problem at all with it. Let's go to question from our mobile app from Rich. Is there a system or are there some tips to help a person study the poetical books of the Bible? That is a great question, Rich. Uh, There's no system. Uh, Poetry by its nature defies uh, having a system at all. I think what we have to do is we have to be able to understand the difference between the literal, the metaphorical, that which is symbol and that which is to be taken literally. Um, I think that's one of the tips that we have to understand. You know, when, when David writes, the trees in the field clap their hands, we can clearly understand that trees don't have uh, hands, uh, and so it's it's figurative or it's a metaphor for something else. Um, so we, we have to be able to distinguish between that which is to be um, literally interpreted and that which is to be understood symbolically or metaphorically. I also think we have to understand that in the poetic books, we don't make doctrine from those poetic books. It's not that the poetic books don't sometimes include doctrine, but we don't make doctrine out of, uh, for example, in Proverbs, train up a child the way he should go, and in the end he will not depart from it. Um, you know, I know a lot of people who misunderstand that verse to, to, to say, well, if I train my child up, then he'll always be a Christian or she'll always be a Christian and they'll never fall away from the Lord. That, that obviously we know by experience is not true. So when you're studying the poetical books, you have to understand the difference between the general application passages and those that we can specifically apply. In some of the poetic books, there's prophecy. We have to be able to distinguish that which is prophecy. So I think the way to understand it is simply to get into the heart, into the mind of the one who wrote it, uh, determine what his purpose is in writing it, and then let the Lord use those poetic books to comfort you. You know, um, um, David, uh, in, in writing so many of the Psalms, um, we can go to First Samuel and Second Samuel. We can go uh, into those books, and we can we can see what he was going through as he was writing them. It's a great help to be able to put the the, the psalm together with the actual incident that he was writing at the time that he was writing about. So um, uh, that's that would be my my primary suggestion for you, Rich. Um, read them. Understand the difference between the general. And the specific, that which is doctrinal and that which can't be made doctrine, uh, understand the difference between literal uh, and metaphor, uh, and I think we'll be okay. Uh, you know, Job is also a poetic book. And Job represents all kinds of problems uh, for people that are literalists in the sense that that uh, um, they don't understand the, the poetic language that's being used to write the book of Job. Um, but but if we if we don't dig in, now I'm not a psalm guy. Uh, you know I know people get such great comfort from the psalms, um, especially when they're going through something difficult. I, I've never been a psalms guy. I like the psalms and we've taught the psalms, uh, but but when I need comfort, I go to the sure promises of God. But for those who really get comforted by the psalms, they should spend a lot of time there. They should spend a lot of time. Let me add one other book here that that I think is important to understand. Um, The book of Ecclesiastes is another one that we gain great exhortation from and there's great value from, simply because in the book of Ecclesiastes we see the result of a life squandered. 
Solomon, the same genius that wrote the book of Proverbs, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. And we can see the damage it's done in a life, the, the potential that's destroyed, um, um, a life lived separate from God, a life lived uh, according to the flesh instead of according to the things of God. So there's great value in these books. Ecclesiastes was a book that when we taught it here at Calvary Chapel, uh, Rich, it, it changed uh, our church. Uh, it really did. We, we, we understood uh, the perspective. And, and I think that's where you've got to go a little bit more into the backstory on the books of, uh, of the, the, the poetic books of the Bible. Hope that helps, Rich. Thank you very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. You know, one of my favorite books is the Song of Solomon. Uh, in all of the Bible, um, because because I read that and understand that that's it's it's a real story, it's historic, and it's accurate, but it's also poetic, and prophetic, and by that I mean when I read Solomon's words to the Shulamite, I know that's Jesus talking to me. So uh, an understanding, some background. I think is also important. Thank you very much, Rich. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a uh, question from Dave from our email inbox. He says, please explain the difference between total depravity and partial depravity. What is the stance Calvary Chapel takes on this? And if you take the stance of partial depravity, what is the biblical proof to back it up? Romans 3, 10 through 18 seems to back up total depravity. A couple of things, Dave, and, and uh, I, I think the, the, the genesis of this question is a reformed position on total depravity. Uh, I, I don't think there's any possible way that, that anyone can justify a, a, a partial depravity doctrine. Um, Bible says there's none good, there's none who seeks God, in our flesh is no good thing, over and over and over. Uh, in, in the passage that you, uh, you highlighted in Romans chapter 3, Paul uses a bunch of Old Testament scriptures to make his point. It's always been the same since the fall. After the fall, the world was infected by sin. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that when we were born as infants, we're condemned already. So the idea that total depravity is, is uh, there should be no question about the biblical doctrine. Now, the problem with total depravity isn't the fact that, that we, we, we are without any value apart from God. The problem with total depravity is the illogical conclusions that those who are Reformed or Calvinists make with it. You know, they'll look at total depravity and say, well, since you're totally depraved, you're dead. We're spiritually dead, and we can't make a decision. And basically what a Calvinist says, Dave, is that you have to be saved to get saved. In other words, uh, the, 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 the salvation experience is a sovereign work of God that man has no part in it. And whenever you say, well, no, we're, we're, we do it. We have to make a choice. They'll say, well, no, we can't make a choice because we're dead. Dead people can't make choices. If we look at that and take that to a logical extreme, people who are dead, I was spiritually dead before I met Jesus, but I did a lot of things. Dead people are walking around. Dead people are doing good things. Dead people are doing bad things. So clearly the human has the capacity to act separate from God. But it's only with God that we have the capacity to act in a constructive or in a manner that moves us toward God. Now, the question is how we do it. And, and, and I think the teaching of Scripture is very, very clear. Total depravity means that unless the Spirit of God quickens our heart, then we cannot hear nor understand. Uh, my passage of Scripture that I studied just yesterday here in church uh, Dave said that uh, uh, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It cannot, nor will it ever be able to do so, to accept or understand the things of God. And we, we find that's true. You know, you tell an, uh, an unbeliever about the goodness of God, and they look at you like you've got a third eye in the middle of your forehead or something. But, but total depravity doesn't mean that even though our mind is hostile to God, that we have no part in the choice. If God simply makes us do what we are programmed to do, then he is a God who gives us no choice. And a God who gives us no choice is not a God of love. 
And so this concept of total depravity, we've got to understand what the process is in getting saved. There's nothing good in my flesh. And I'll use my own example. It's been a little over 26 years ago. Jesus Christ, in answer to many, many, many prayers, my own wife's prayer for 13 years, the Holy Spirit began hanging out with me. Sort of, and I like to say it like this. He goes, psst, psst, I'm here. Psst, psst, I'm here. And my conscience began to bother me when I was doing things. And the harder my heart got, the farther I fell, the louder that knocking on my heart began. Now, in the Bible, we're told in the New Testament that there are three relationships that every believer has with the Holy Spirit. The first is the answer to total depravity. It's the para in Greek, or the with experience, when the Holy Spirit comes beside us. Jesus said, when he comes, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And when he comes beside and he starts quickening your heart to the fact that the things you're doing are wrong, then he starts to quicken our heart to the solution for the things that we're doing. In other words, we're not just lost. If everything I'm doing is wrong, what's the answer? Well, he convinces us then that Jesus is Lord. Jesus said, when he comes, he'll testify of me. And he comes alongside, um, one of the theological terms for this, Dave, is prevenient grace. And it's not uh, a grace apart from the Spirit, it's just the Spirit coming alongside us. And then, of course, when we say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in us, that's the second relationship we have. And then when we obey God, when we have been given gifts to, to use for God's glory, he comes upon us in power. So when a Calvinist says that we're totally depraved, dead people can't make choices, um, they're, they're, they're jumping to an illogical conclusion that doesn't consider the character and the nature of God. That's very, very important. If you have a doctrine that doesn't consider the nature of God, then your doctrine is wrong. So total depravity is the only biblical doctrine. There is no place where it says, that then use those words, that's just uh, used by Calvinists to describe the two and the tulip formula of identifying what the tenets of Calvinism are. Um, so total depravity, it, it, it means what it says. We have nothing in our flesh apart from God that's good. We don't want to do good. We're not seeking God. You know, the day I got saved over 26 years ago, I wasn't looking for God. I didn't leave the house that day saying, you know what, I think I'll get saved today and maybe change everything around. But God behind the scenes was sovereignly working. In answer to the girl he calls Precious's prayer, my wife Paula, and he was whispering in my ear, there's something better. You know there's something better. So don't be led, Dave, into the illogical conclusions that Calvinists make. We're not dead, we're alive. Physically, we're alive. Spiritually, when the Spirit quickens our heart, we, we begin this process of coming to Jesus. Whenever you share your faith with somebody who wants nothing to do with it, it's because the Spirit of God hasn't quickened their heart. So salvation is the work of God. Let me say one other thing here, Dave, in the couple of minutes that we have left in this half hour. The people who say from the Reformed position, the people who say that, well, you know, if you have to believe to be saved, that's a work. And we're saved by grace, which isn't works. We're saved by grace through faith and even the faith out of ourselves. It's not a, a work to believe God. It's a requirement. If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, you're saved. And God gives everybody a choice. We have to make a choice to follow Jesus. So, uh, total depravity, Dave, in short, is the, is the, is the biblical doctrine where we're, we're lost in our sin, we're condemned already, there's nothing good in our flesh, no one seeks God. At the same time, we have to make a choice. And the only way we can make the right choice is by the power of the Holy Spirit. No non-reformed or no non-Calvinist is going to represent that we can make a choice apart from the Holy Spirit. It's still God who's responsible for quickening the heart. So Dave, I hope that answers your question, makes sense to you.
340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Where are we in the program? Let me check this out. We've got three minutes. I can find about two and a half minutes in this half. Let me get a question. Uh, here's a question from Dell. Does the NIV and some other newer translation take verses or words out of the Bible? Dell, the answer is no. Um, uh, I, I dealt with this very briefly yesterday, right at the beginning of our study uh, in Romans chapter 8, the first verse. Uh, the New King James and the King James versions of the Bible uh, add something that isn't in most manuscripts, but the translators, I believe, have added it because it's written verbatim, word for word, in verse 4 of Romans chapter 8. So it does no damage uh, to, to the text. It doesn't take any, uh, any integrity from the text. Um, but here's what we have to understand about the different translations. The New King James and the King James are translating their Bible from different sets of manuscripts than the newer modern versions. There's two sets of manuscripts, um, the, the, the Texas Receptus or the majority text, and, and the uh, Alexandrian text. The newer models, or newer versions, are, are all translations of the Alexandrian manuscripts. They're older, and they're thought by, by some, not me included, but they're thought by some to be better or more authoritative simply on the basis that they're older. Uh, but all they're doing is translating a different set, and they're doing a good job, an accurate job of translating the manuscript before them. And in every case where the NIV or the newer translations take something out, there is a notice at the bottom, some translations add. So nobody's trying to hide anything at all. So read your 1984-only NIV and do it with confidence. 340-9585, you can hear the music. We've got 30 minutes left in today's program. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. I'm laughing. I just had a new fifth grade teacher come in uh, during the break. Mr. Scott is his name. And I said to him, I said, sir, you coming back tomorrow? And, and hope, happily, he is he, a good day. So uh, remember, keep our staff and our kids uh, in your prayers. Uh, here's a question from Denise. She says, Pastor Ron and Esther, why did Vashti refuse the king's orders to come before the men at the feast? Uh, Denise, uh, there's a couple of things that we can infer. We're not told specifically why she didn't. Uh, but there's a couple of things that we can infer. Um, uh, he wanted her to come in uh, so that all of his guests, remember they'd been drinking for seven days. This is just a drunken fast. And he wanted to come in before all of the men, the important people in his cabinet, uh, drunk men who uh, were, were clearly going to be misbehaving, and display her beauty and her jewels. Now, Jewish tradition um, uh, is that, that what he wanted her to do was come in before all of the men wearing only her jewels. Um, um, whether or not that's true, we don't know. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't put it beyond the king. We know a little bit about his character. Um, but we do know this. He wanted to display beauty. He was making her sort of an object uh, rather than honoring her as his wife. Now, remember, these are not Jews, so um, that's the way things were done. Um, and, and, and she simply wasn't going to be made a spectacle of. Uh, Vashti is an honorable woman. Uh, she is uh, highly regarded uh, the way Scripture portrays her. And she was maintaining um, her, her, her integrity um, and, and, and I think her modesty. She didn't want to come in and be made a display of or, or to be made an object in any way, especially in knowing the, the condition that men who'd been drinking for seven days and seven nights would be in uh, at this party. It was a, the dishonor was done by the king. Um, the, the response of the king and the king's um, officials was swift. Um, something has to be done uh, because 
if if she gets away with this, and all of our wives are going to be disobedient. Um, and and even that thing God used, even that thing God used. It's an Old Testament version of Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things together, and we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And that gave an opportunity to uh, to a, a young woman named Hadassah Esther. Uh, and in her case, um, God was able to use her. By the way, historically, we know that Vashti was restored to her position at a later time, so God honored the stance that she took as well. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app, and again, anonymously. Uh, Pastor Ron, with two James among the 12 disciples, Mark 15:40 refers to James as the less. Uh, what is the measurement criteria for the half-brother of Jesus that labels him as less? Is it, as one of your staff pastors may suggest, that his beard was shorter than the others? Hmm, anonymous... I got a smiley face on the question, but I don't really get the question. No, uh, uh, he was James the last. It just means this is James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, it's not James, the half-brother of the Lord. Um, uh, and the reason he was referred to as James the last is because James, the Lord's half-brother, had uh, this in- enormous uh, position in the early church of influence. Uh, he was a giant of the early church. James, uh, again, the Lord's half-brother, I want to distinguish here, um, be, became sort of lovingly known as Camel Knees because he was considered so pious and he prayed so much that he was always on his knees. Uh, and he, he just was a giant figure in the early church. James the Less, the son of Alphaeus, um, many think, and I happen to agree, but there's no way of proving it, that he is the brother of Matthew, the tax collector, uh, another son of Alphaeus. Uh, whether it's the same Alphaeus or not, we can't be sure. But the, James, the son of Alphaeus, he is the one who is referred to as James the Less uh, in the passage of Scripture. So um, that's who they are. Hope that helps, Anonymous. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from um, Theo. Uh, Do you have a book on raising children that you recommend? Uh, Theo, I do. No, nobody likes my answer because it it makes you read the Bible. It's Proverbs. It's the greatest child-raising book in the history of the world, the greatest one ever written. Be very, very, very focused on what God has written. I still get frustrated. I'm a pastor, so forgive me for a very, very short rant. It's very frustrating to me that people, Christians, would rather read something that was written by a person than by God. It's like Dr. Dobson knows more than Jesus does. Remember, Solomon wrote Proverbs under the power of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the Spirit of God pushing the pins of men. And so raising children, you have to know Proverbs. The principles, the general and the specific passages are so clear. And I think, Theo, in, in a situation like this, when, when you're consistent then you avoid falling into the trap. You know, uh, Paul says, fathers do not embitter, and other translations says exasperate your children. Uh, Consistency matters. So just Proverbs. Please, please, please get away from all the emotional stuff, all the psychology stuff. Um, There's good stuff out there. Um, The one book that I have recommended in the past is a book by a friend of mine named David Rosales. And I think the, the, the right title is Raising Right-Hearted Kids in a Wrong-Hearted World. And the reason I recommend that book is because uh, David's approach is if you want to raise children who are going to love God and follow God, then first and foremost, you've got to be a mother and a father who love God and follow God. There's got to be consistency and consistent godliness in your home. And if you'll do those things, then you'll be able to raise children because of the example they set. So Proverbs... And Raising Right-Hearted Kids in a Wrong-Hearted World by David Rosales, R-O-S-A-L-E-S. Uh, I can recommend those, uh, but I really don't recommend any others at all. I, I want Christians to dig into their Bibles. I want Christians to 
to, to study, to show themselves approved, workmen and women who rightly divide the word of God. So I, I think it's really that important. Thank you, Theo, for the question. I thank it very much. Um, the, here's the, the, right, the correct title. It's Raising Right-Hearted Kids in a Wrong Way World. That's the title. So it is available uh, on Amazon, I am sure. 340-9585. Uh, here is a question from Adam. Adam says, Isaiah 53 says that by Jesus' stripes we are healed. Does that mean that physical healing is promised to believers in Christ? Adam has nothing to do with physical healing. The nonsensical thinking when you look at the world around us, when you look at all of the, the faithful men and women who suffer, men and women of great faith, including, I might add, the Apostle Paul, the nonsensical teaching that the atonement guarantees or even promises or even hints at physical healing. It's just pure wishful thinking. And because wishful thinking thinks, or sells rather, remember, it's false hope, false hope sells, uh, people have been misunderstanding and, and misusing those verses forever. The only healing that's promised by Jesus' stripes is the healing of the one fatal disease for everybody, and that's sin. By believing in Jesus, we are healed. Peter speaks about it. Matthew's Gospel speaks about it and sets it in the proper context. So there is no mention or 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 even application from Jesus' death on the cross to physical healing. Again, if we just look around, um, we have some people in our church, and I'm sure everybody does in their church, but you look at people that are so faithful. Today I just looked at an update on a a man I've been praying for for a long time. His name is Nabil Qureshi. I would appreciate if you would pray for him. He's a member of Ravi Zacharias' uh, team, um, uh, a converted Muslim. Um, and he's evidently dying of stomach cancer. He's 34 years old or something like that. Um, Faithful men and women get sick and die. We live in a fallen world. And by the way, Adam, every one of those false teachers that talk about the, the atonement guaranteeing, if you only have enough faith, every one of those people eventually get sick and die. So it's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of God's will for your life. One other comment here, Adam, that I think needs to be addressed. We, based on these passages of Scripture being misused, we, we we have this pernicious teaching out there that says that it is never God's will for anybody to get sick. It's never God's will for anybody to die of disease. Um, that's simply a lie. Now, God's will was that we would have lived forever in a perfect world. That's the world he created, but we messed it up. Now we have to deal with the reality. He said, when you eat the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. And we've been dying ever since. With two exceptions, everybody dies. Enoch and Elijah. It's appointed on a man to die once and then face the judgment. So we're all going to die. Paul says, outwardly, in physicality, we're wasting away day by day. Inwardly, we're being renewed in the Spirit, becoming more and more like Jesus every day. So when this body does give out, then I'm going to be with Jesus and live. But as a pastor who's seen lives crushed, seen people completely abandon God because of this terrible, terrible teaching that God never wants anybody to be sick, there's only two conclusions they can come to. Either God's rejected me or my faith is inadequate. And that is pure evil. Pure evil, Adam. So uh, we're healed from the disease of sin. I hope that convinces you. 340-9585. Here is a man, uh, Jason, 
who says, no, I got Harold on the line. Thanks for calling, Harold. We'll go to you first. Okay. Hi, Pastor Ron. I just wanted to share something with you. I've heard you mention a couple of times that I like the way you put it, that the Spirit of the Lord, or the Spirit of God pushes the pens or pencils of men, and, you know, to write the Bible, and God-inspired and all that, I believe. But, I, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes i got to tell you, I, I feel like maybe the Spirit of God pushes me sometimes, when I think I ain't going to be able to get to the next red light. You know, you drive to work sometimes, and you go like, mm-hmm. how did I get halfway to work? I'm just kind of overwhelmed here. <laughs> so if you think that's okay, I mean, I think it's okay that I feel the Spirit of God is pushing me through certain times and stuff. But if you want to elaborate on that, you can. It's not that funny. I, I can, Harold. Thank you. That's a great thought. And and All in right. fact, I, I spent almost an entire Bible study yesterday uh, talking about this very issue. You know, one of the things that, that I have in common with the Apostle Paul, and I don't have very much in common with him, but one of the things is that, that he repeats himself over and over and over. And and what I have been saying now since Romans chapter 7 and into our first two studies in Romans chapter 8 on Sundays is that apart from him, there's nothing we can do. And so not only do we need him to push us, we, we need him to, to we need to personally depend on him pushing us. That's what leading is. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. I call them by name and they follow me. And and Harold, when we're following Jesus, it's it's the spirit of God that's pushing us. Um, uh, it's, it's never a safe thing to sort of be in a fog or a daze while you're driving and end up five minutes later and say, how did I get here? Kind of thing. But But everything that we do needs to be led by, prompted by, led by, and empowered by the Spirit of God. Just as surely as as um, um, God breathed means, as I say, pushing, the Spirit of God pushing the pins of men, um, um, they, they weren't aware uh, of a force that was causing they were they thought they were just writing a letter, but but at the same time, God had something far greater in mind, when you're letting the Spirit of God push you, and I don't mean push forcefully, I mean just you're leading, you're letting Him lead, following Jesus, um, then then your life, our lives, all of us, have much greater significance. We find ourselves doing things, involved in things, that we never would have thought of on our own. We find ourselves in a position to minister to somebody at work, to, to encourage somebody who just looks like they need to be encouraged. Uh, one of the things that Paul and I purpose in our heart every day to do is, is the minute we leave the house, Lord, give us the opportunity to talk to somebody about you. And he never disappoints. There's always somebody. And often it's just as simple as saying, how you doing? You look okay? Are you doing okay? You don't look, you don't, you look troubled. Paula has such a gift at that. And people just, people, total strangers just start just kind of puking up their lives to her. Well, that's because God is preparing the way. That's God pushing our lives, getting us to a place that we might not otherwise go. But it's one way, Harold, to ensure that we're always in the perfect, pleasing, and acceptable will of God. Letting the Spirit of God lead rather than us going out on our own hoping he catches up. So, yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. That's the reason that I say all the time, just be with Jesus. The only way you can just be with Jesus is to let the Spirit lead, to let the Spirit guide. Um, you know, when the Spirit is called um, the, the, the counselor or the comforter, that's something that we, all, we, we should all take to heart. He comes beside us. He comes to live in us. He comes upon us in power. Jesus says he's our rear guard. We follow him. He goes before us. Numbers says his everlasting hands are beneath us lest we fall. That's a pretty safe and secure place to be. Much safer, much more secure, infinitely so, than any place that we're going to go or anything that we're going to do on our own. So, Harold, I think that's a great picture. You just gave me a great picture, and I might even steal that sometime in a message with, with your blessing. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is 
a question from Jason that I was starting to read when I found out Harold was on the line. Jason says, I feel I'm called to be a pastor of a young family and wanted some advice about how you manage your time so family doesn't suffer because of ministry. Uh, Jason, I need to be really, really fair here because uh, I've never been a pastor with a young family. I was 40 years old, almost 40 years old when I got saved, and and uh, I, I didn't get here to San Antonio to pastor uh, this church, my first church, until I was 44 years of age. So, uh, in fact, I, my very first Bible study, I just turned 45. So, so it's important. To, I, I don't want to be... Uh, misleading here. I am not an expert on how to manage uh, time with a young family. The needs are great. However, having said that, let me suggest two things. One, you and your wife have to be partners in your calling. You know, if you're called to be a pastor, your wife is called to be a pastor's wife. That freaked Paul out at the beginning. But we were partners in this ministry. And so it wasn't something that we, we did lightly. Um, uh, it took a lot of prayer, a lot of time. It, it required each of us to make a personal commitment to doing this for the glory of God. So there's never been even a moment where Paulo, who was jealous of the time that I spent here at the church or jealous of the time that I spent with other people, uh, there was never a moment when she was really, really needy and needed me to be home. Why don't you come home and just spend time with me, that kind of thing. It just never happened. Because the truth is, we're both doing the same thing, walking the same direction. We're we're one flesh. We're not two. Uh, as it's turned out, Jason, uh, Paul is probably as busy as I am, and she actually is busier more nights of the week than I am. So, you know, this is just part of the life of service. Uh, if you're going to serve, you have to be available to serve when the people of God are there. For us, that's uh, Wednesdays and Fridays and Sundays. For Paul, it's Monday night for the ladies' study and 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 uh, other things that she has going. So uh, it's it's a matter of, of being in agreement and, and, and truly counting the cost. If you count the cost, um, then, then you and your wife truly are following Jesus together. And when you do that, your life will be so rich and so blessed that believe me, God will fill in all the gaps. Paul and I have plenty of time together. Um, uh, she knows that she's the most important person on this planet to me. Um, um, so so there's, there's no competition for my time. Now, having said that, the second thing I want to deal with is kids. Because I have a lot of uh, pastors here on my staff. We've got eight of them, I think, on staff. And most of them have young children. And I don't want them to miss baseball games or football games or or school events um, or performances. I don't want them to miss those things. I want them to be um, dads. I don't want any of their the children growing up and saying, well, you know, I don't get to see my dad because he serves Jesus or or we're poor because we serve Jesus kind of thing. I don't I don't I don't want them to have that impression of the Lord because that's not not a correct impression. So I make sure that our pastors here, are, 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 their wives are partners with them, and their children aren't being deprived of their presence. Um, you know, I want my pastors here every time the door is open, unless there's something more important going on in their life with their kid. It's just that simple. So um, um, I, I think, I think it's, it's, it's a commitment to partner, um, at the same time understanding that you are not being a good pastor if you're not also a good dad. And conspicuous by their absence, Jason, is good husbands and good fathers in our Bibles. We just don't have any examples. The only example of a godly marriage that I can find in, in Scripture, I mean, a really godly marriage, is um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And I believe with all my heart it's because they were serving together. You, didn't, you never found them uh, apart from one another. They were serving together. And beyond that, pretty much they're bad husbands and bad dads. We don't want our children to suffer because of a calling for ministry. If we do that, it's not God. This false dichotomy, Jason, of, of uh, you know, God first, family second, ministry third, uh, th- that's just a, a dumb cliche. Um, God is always first, 
But if God's first, he'll have you taking care of your wife and your children. He'll have you meeting their needs. It doesn't mean that they're needy. It just means that they need their dad around. So uh, that's important. Can I also say one other thing? You talk about managing time. How are we doing on time? Okay, I'll I'll close the program with this. Um, You've got to be organized. You've got to be a good time manager. By that I mean there's a lot of work um, in being a pastor. A lot of time, a lot of Bible study. Um, Your Bible study time can't diminish the time that you have with your wife. It can't diminish the time that you have with your children. What that means is you've got to make really, really effective use of whatever time that you have. That's how important it is, because if you're not teaching your wife the Bible, if you're not reading with her and talking about these things together, if you're not having family time in the Word together every day, then, then, then you're not going to be a good pastor. If you get so busy where you're always at the last minute doing things, uh, preparing messages, or, or doing your own personal Bible studies, um, then, then you're not going to be a good, a good example for the people to follow. You've got to be organized. That means you put in the work, you manage your time, and you keep focused on what God sets before you instead of the things that the world sets before you. Uh, I was once asked, Jason, about a, a pastor who says, you know, I like to play video games and stuff as a hobby. And, and, and my first question was, how do you have time to do that? When I go home, I don't have time to do anything but go, wow, I'm done. So you've got to be really, really good at managing your time, and you've got to be organized. I typically, Jason, work uh, as much as three to four weeks ahead in my Bible studies. Um, um, Today, for instance, on Monday, and this is my schedule, I, 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 I finished next Sunday's study, not not the next Sunday, but the Sunday after that. Uh, so uh, the Sunday message I'm going to be doing this week has already been done. Um, I've got my Friday night studies done for the next two weeks. Um, and, and so it just, it just requires you to be a good manager of your time. Hope that helps. Thank you for the question, Jason. Hey, thanks for the calls today. I appreciate the questions. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Remember, no Monday night studies tonight. Back on September 11th. See you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.